Hey everybody and welcome back to the Skullcast, the premier podcast about Berserk from the community at Skullnight.net. I am your eternal host, Walter, and joining me today for episode 128 are Azil. Hey everybody. And Grail. Hello. Welcome back. There is just a little bit of news before we get into the main event, which is finishing up our reread of volume 28. Uh, the news is that the next wing, next leg of the Big Berserk exhibition will kick off August 6th through September 4th in Nagoya in Japan at Terepia Hall. I believe ticketing information has not been announced yet, but those are the dates for the event. So it's a month basically at the ass end of summer in Japan. The other, I guess, somewhat related news is that as of, I don't know, a week or two ago, Japan announced that they were going to begin lifting some restrictions for tourists on a limited basis, a trial basis. Yeah, uh, for now it's only on tours, so you've got to, like, it's pretty restrictive. Hmm. You need to find an agency that has a, a base in Japan and they'll only allow some people on some tours and everything has to be predetermined in advance. You're always accompanied by a Japanese person, a guide, so... That's pretty tight. No walking around coughing on anybody. But what's funny is, uh, like every country, I mean, most of the Western countries, uh, they don't ask for vaccine certificates or anything anymore. So they let you enter without even checking your COVID status. Wow. You have to only go through certain places and stuff like that. So it's kind of... I would say a bit nonsensical, but what do I know, right? But in any case, for like independent tourists wanting to go to the Berserk ex- exhibition for now, uh, that's not really possible. Yeah. Maybe they'll open up further in July. Who knows? We'll see. Having the date is the first step at planning any potential trip out there because yeah. now you can actually book a flight. Buy a refundable ticket, buy some kind of traveling insurance that, that allows you to refund the ticket if the restrictions don't actually lift. But for anybody planning to go out there, August 6th to September 4th, if you get get yourself a ticket in the middle there, as long as you can refund that ticket, I think that's the way forward for anybody who's interested. Mm, yeah, a lot of airlines will have a cancellation fee that's like 50 bucks. Exactly. So, I mean, losing 50 bucks, that's not nice, but yeah, it's not that big of a deal. The alternative is waiting till announcements get made and then the tickets prices are probably, you know, a couple hundred bucks more. So it's definitely the way to go. Yeah, well, even more than that, because uh, I checked recently and going from uh, Europe to Japan was still pretty cheap compared to what it used to be. Like I found some tickets at uh, 400 euros. Oh, wow. Uh, round trip? Yeah, round trip. Yeah, That's incredible. Oh, wow. For me, it's like starting point of like 1200 bucks. Yeah. Yeah, that's crazy. Well, the normal price is around a thousand euros. If you, yeah. like, if you plan, of course, if you go crazy, you travel first class, it's going to be 10,000, right? Well, but, I'm not going to do that. But, uh, you know, flying coach and planning in advance and so on and going from like a Wednesday to a Thursday. So it's not the most common days. Yeah, I found something at like, uh, 400 round trip and it was a, a direct flight too so those wow. are still super cheap price prices compared to like i mean it's, it's um, half the normal price and i feel like as soon as it reopens uh properly it's gonna go back to being over a thousand oh that's yeah. true i didn't think about that uh also fuel prices across uh, uh in eastern states are up 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 crazy more than i've ever seen them in my lifetime mm-hmm. so that's also affecting uh, our local prices. 
Yeah, yeah, it's probably going to go up even more. Good point. Yeah. All right. With that bit of news out of the way, there's not a whole lot else going on in the Berserk world right now. So we're going to continue with the reread project. Uh, Volume 28. Some of my favorite episodes of the whole series are in this section, and I really had a lot of fun going through them. Uh, The one I'm about to read uh, in particular. So I'll start uh, with Military Base. Guts group arrives outside the walls of Vertanis, and they see a huge gathering of soldiers representing the Holy Sea Alliance, the fighting force that's intended to take out the Kushan. Serpico lists the names and circumstances of all the allied countries that they see, including several that we've never heard of before or will again. Guts thinks to himself that he knows the atmosphere of this place well, the preparation for a battlefield. Shirke ends up with quite a different feeling, though. She's nervous around so many humans and inside a walled city so far from nature. Inside the walls, they encounter a mercenary troop, the Band of the Dawn Fang, who are recruiting. Uh, the talk leads to what makes a good leader in a mercenary, and Guts weighs in on it, saying a leader should care more about the well-being of their troops than for victory. Naturally, Serpico says he's reminded of Griffith, the charismatic leader of the Band of the Falcon. Saying, uh, saying the name spurs Farnese and Puck's memories. But this moment of revelation is broken by Isidro, who says his hero was a Raiders captain, the man who took down 100, no, 1,000 enemies. <laughs> They're stopped by guards uh, who say that Shirke can't wear a witch's outfit in this territory. So she diverts the guards' attention, which then attracts everybody else's attention. Um, Isidro says ultimately she's going to have to change clothes, uh, which results in them having a scuffle and her hat rolls into the path of a wagon and gets trampled. So Shirke runs further into the city and Guts assigns a Sidra to fetch her. We end the episode with Shirke seeing a strange specter in an alleyway uh, with a string around its neck. That's the episode. I went very quickly uh, because every single page here is just thick with detail. Every panel has some little notable little thing. It's totally crazy. When I made my notes for this episode... I probably read through it four or five times. And then just this morning I went through and I was sending Azil screenshots of things that I'd never even seen before. Like little, little pieces of panels that were just funny or interesting. It's just so much to see. The whole episode is just teeming with details about life. Um, I think what I like most about this episode is that you get a really grounded sense of the people who inhabit the Berserk world more than you do in, I can't think of another episode because there's so many people packed into such a small area. And it's not just the location. You know, Mira spends a lot of time on funny details about close living life like this. You know, you see soldiers hitting on women, soldiers beating up other soldiers. You see like uh, a veteran who is wounded is now forced to be a beggar on the streets. You see all these little like aspects of city life that often they don't pause to, to show very much of if more than a little glimpse. I just really appreciate the attention to detail and like the, the depth of focus, which is to say like you see everything in focus, you know, like they, all the little details of the streets and the people that inhabit them. So mm. a, a lot to see. Uh, it's also totally gorgeous, particularly the first big landscape shot you see outside the city. Uh, you see all the different troops are practicing and pre- preparing for for battle. Uh, but and you see this like sprawling, trailing uh, caravan leading to the city, and every every little part of the of the thing is detailed. You see troops all on the, on the far horizon. So lots lots and lots to see. Um, another interesting detail is in the first couple pages. 
you see some sound effects of the people screaming and then you actually see Shirke and covering her ears and Eva Lira saying it's so loud. So like the, the loudness of something is not a, usually a texture that they call up into uh, in, a, in, a, in a comic, but you can kind of see it here. Uh, boy, I've, there's a lot to say. I don't know what not to say here. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of focus on this, the troops and the countries, right? But like the heart of the whole episode and really the sequence of episodes is really Shirke uh, finding herself in the midst of this many humans and, and how she feels about that because she's basically, you know, found friendship among humans, but she, this is still not something she's comfortable with, like this many people. And so you get to see how she feels about that and and why it's so different from her lifestyle. So she's acclimating to what, you know, I don't want to say real humans because Flora is a real human, but I guess corporeal human living is like, you know, life among amongst most humans. This is something that's completely foreign to her. I think beyond that, it's also like urban life uh, because, right. I mean, even Enoch, for example, it's a rural place. It's a small village. Uh, but here we have a giant city that's, uh, even made more crowded by all the armies gathering there. So it becomes some kind of, I mean, even something on the scale of Wyndham, what Wyndham would have been. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I spent a little bit of time talking about Shirke, but also Isidro here. What I found interesting about Isidro is that, you know, he starts by teasing her, but ultimately when her hat gets blown into the road, and trampled, he realizes through Eva Lira chastising him for it, that it was kind of serious and it meant something to her. And you can tell he actually cares. He stops his pestering her and Serpico pauses to notice. And so does Puck. And he actually goes and gets a banana to cheer up Isidro, presumably because the uh, Isidro monkey joke thing. Yeah. <laughs> I think he's also, let's say, he shows that he's worried about her yes. in a way he doesn't like to admit. Even... Him wanting her to change clothes, it's not just for the good of the group. It's also because he knows, you know, he says you'll be burned at the stake, which he says yeah. very coarsely. But he's doing this for her own good, even if she doesn't want to accept it. He's looking out for her in his he own He doesn't way. want to have to jump off of a rampart tied to a rope to save her from the stake like he did for Casca. <laughs> right. He's already done that once. Once was enough. Yeah. <laughs> I like that Guts gave him the task of going out there and getting her as well, giving him little mission in the city, which leads to some great scenes in the following episode. I've skipped over it, but when this episode first came out, it was a, I remember making this little like diagram of all the new countries that they had announced. I think it's in the encyclopedia as the Holy Sea Alliance yeah. diagram. Still being referenced to these day every yeah. on the internet. <laughs> it's really just because they mentioned so many things on literally, it's just a two page spread, but you, they mentioned like, I want to say it's six or so new country or city state names that we've never heard of before. Yeah. Uh, and often these are, when we mention countries in, in the berserk world, it's really just this, you know, Midland and Tudor fighting each other. Uh, but now we see other countries and uh, that occupy the continent and it's all through the lens of the the holy sea so it's broadened to be a much larger space than just a local con conflict like the hundred years war what's interesting is they're all very different miro spends time detailing like the background and the context for what for what happened in this country and why they're here what i also like is visually all their designs are very distinct tudor has their animalistic yeah designs mm -hmm. and there's another one what is it balden looks very uniform yep these other groups are more rough and tumble right um so i just like that he spent time designing what the country what it might look like militarily 
And like you said, it's so notable that Miura went to the trouble to point out all this information when before we had so little. So now it's just like, oh, God, I have to write all this down. (laughs) Mm. Yeah. And and the when you look at it, like the fact Bolden, for example, they all have uniform uh, armors and helmets. Then other groups uh, were composed of former criminals Mm -hmm. and some of them employed mercenaries. So these are more like a patchwork of armors. Uh, right. it's a lot of work went into the design. I mean, for some of these, it's just uh, small details in a small panel on part of a page, which will never be used again. But uh, you see they wear their shields differently. They wear their helmets differently. They have different types of gears and bags attached to themselves. Their greaves, their boots, helmets. Uh, it's just like to find all these designs, make them work together like that. Lots of work. Yeah. Right. And it and looks like for, for Tudor, they actually have like a theme. Like these guys are the boar knights, it looks yeah. like. Yeah. Right. I thought it was just one, but then you can see the other boar shield emblem tucked under yeah. his cape. I just see it for the first time now. Yeah. They're all. And the, the horse even has little tusks. Come on. Jeez. These guys are nerds. Maybe <laughs> maybe it's a red, red boars because, you know, it's usually a color and an animal. So. Uh-huh. Oh, right. Yeah. Brown boars. <laughs> In just a few panels, we get to learn so much about all these countries. Uh, and previously, we'd only heard about them at war. But um, they're about to get wiped off the map, you know, in a matter of, what is it now, 70 or so episodes from this point. Um, all these varied stories. But they provide context for the Alliance. I think that's important to show that everyone's banding together for this one thing. All the different tribes, states, countries are getting together. This is the big push, right? So that's why it's, I think it's important to show that it's not just one uh, force. It's everybody. This is the the biggest uh, gathering of might that can muster against the Kushans. And it's not enough, you know, ultimately it's not, it's not enough. It also gives depth to the world by showing that even Midlands fall is an opportunity for its neighbors Mm -hmm. and former, let's say, allies within the religion uh, alliance, but also kind of rivals and stuff to try and, and you know, get uh, pieces of the pie to themselves. So it's an interesting thing. And it feels like when you look at uh, how Mira did it, he kind of inspired himself from how Europe was, you know, with mm-hmm. the city-states, which you can tie to Italy or Greece. Uh, you have some... Uh, nations that are republics. Randall is a republic. Others are still kingdoms. So it's a, it's an interesting way to quickly establish, a, like you say, a patchwork of alliances and make the world seem big and more fully uh, fleshed out than it was yeah, before. Like, as if we'd only seen, a, and we have, only a vertical slice of the real stage of the world before yep. now. Which is something we... The, w- the reason it makes sense too to do it like that is because before that we didn't need to see it, mm-hmm. and so because he carefully crafted the story, it doesn't feel like uh, some things that just all of a sudden oh now it's a bigger world. Oh well, we never heard about this before, but it makes sense because we didn't need to know about it before. But nothing restricted the idea that it existed. In some stories, you have. Uh, like a country and it feels like everything is within that country then it opens up and it's like oh there's more stuff there's another island next to that one it, uh, it always makes me think of those fantasy novels where the author like gives you way too much information in the first couple of chapters and you're just like overwhelmed yeah. whereas this is very differently paced yeah and it's also some things that takes the proper amount of space like you get the information 
It's not going to be very useful, so it's not like it takes up uh, three episodes where Serpico's like, blah, 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 and then blah, blah, blah happened. You know, that kind of stuff would be useless. Well, even when they talk about the mercenaries, which at the time seems kind of extraneous, like why are they going into this barking guy? But it's because all of it leads to, and Guts can't escape it, the mention of the Falcons. Yeah. And that that name, you know, Puck, Puck mentioned, uh, remembered it and, and Farnese mentioned it. So it, it all it all comes back to that, uh, contextualizes what the importance of mercenaries in this time. But then it goes back to, you know, that it is personal for Guts, this thing, suddenly. Yeah. What I like is the effect it has. Because mm-hmm. when I read this episode, it feels very, how to say, lighthearted a bit. It's like all oh, these big armies, Shuki is discovering it, Serpico is talking about it, and Gus is telling Isidro about, from his perspective and experience, this guy's doing this because of that, blah, blah, blah. Then Serpico mentions uh, Griffiths and the band of the Falcon, and it's like a cold shower for Gus. Like immediately you see that yeah. bottom panel, his face with the uh, downturned mouth, uh, finally this worried look at the back, and... Uh, then we move on to Isidro's ridiculous <laughs> belief <laughs> of, uh, about the 100-man slayer, and it lightens up the mood a bit. But we, we get back to Grunbelt, uh, God thinking about his words, that the fact there's a new band of the Falcon, and, and so on. And it kind of, how to say, it inserts a little bit of worry into the, the atmosphere, if you know yeah. what I mean. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, I think what kind of what is most what is the word jarring to me is the top top panel on that page where it shows Grunbeld. It says um, it can be said that the discord between Griffith and the King is what caused the fate of Midland today. A big rise and a big fall. It's so cool. Like, he's really talking about the the death of the Falcons, you know, and that's something that's personal to guts, you know, and yet it's being almost trivialized as a piece of history in this in this way, you know. Yeah, it's yeah. almost like gossip. Like word yeah. has it that. This exactly. stuff happened. Crazy. And yeah, and whenever they ask him directly, you know, what group were you with? And he just, you know, parries it, says, I don't, I've forgotten. It's a long time ago, which, you know, interesting that he just directly lies about it. <laughs> but, you know, it is obviously now was not the time to say, oh, that group you just spent all this time, you know, chatting up about, that was me. It wasn't really the right time. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I mean, clearly he doesn't want to talk about it. Yeah. And it's funny because for a long time, Kind of a sidetrack, but for a long time, we we supposed when would he tell them about it? Like, when mm-hmm. would it happen? Whatever uh, would it happen on the on the ship, on the way, it would be a good, good uh, point. And it, it does when he's basically backed into a corner by uh, Gethlin, <laughs> and he has to be like, okay, well, yeah. And, and even so, he, like, says the minimum he can about it. And I feel yeah. like... If any details were to be revealed, it would have been like uh, linked to Casca and, and so on, you know, later on in the story. Uh, so it shows also, I'd say, how painful it is for him and personal and he's just not something he would easily want to talk about at all. I'd forgotten that Gedflin is the one that pulled it out of him because in my head it was when Shirke and Farnese were in Casca's memories and they see them together. Uh, as the m- member of the, of the Falcon with Griffith there as well. Mm. But you're right. Ged just basically makes Guts admit it. Yeah, when they arrive, he's like, well, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I got to ask you, uh, what does he want? That mm-hmm. man who, like, say, puts the world upside down just so he could get uh, mm-hmm. his desire. And that's when Gus has to say. And at the time, Serpico's like, wow, I had no idea. 
I knew it was somebody incredible, but I had no idea it was like that. And uh, so it's it's an interesting continuation of this scene in a way. At least that's how I perceived it when it was published at the time. Mm-hmm. The last little note I have, and I have a lot of notes, but I wanted to open it up a little more, is um, when Shirke uses the stun uh, to distract the guards, she ends up attracting everyone else's attention too, because she can't get away from the fact that she's wearing that you know outfit. Uh, so I think the implication is that she stunned lots and lots of people all at once, which is just like obviously an unsustainable strategy as you're moving deeper and deeper into a city. I just thought it was an amusing moment of like foolhardiness of Shirke, who's someone who's very precocious normally and very wise about certain things, but completely oblivious about others, you know, being surrounded like this. Uh, she doesn't quite know what to do with herself. Yeah, it seemed to really catch her off guard in this episode and in future yeah. episodes. <laughs> just a little flustered. Yeah. yeah. Just a- what I like about it is Mira could easily just have hand-waved it saying, well, she's just going to hypnotize everybody in the street every time she passes by another guy as they don't see her or whatever. He could have just hand-waved it. Instead, he decided <laughs> to be like, well, I'm going to show like the limits of what this can do. Like we saw her mm-hmm. do it before, but that's the limit of what it can be done. And just an interesting way to approach this. And of course, it's used narratively to uh, push forward the fact she runs off, Isidro has to go after her and, and so on. So it's a, it's a little adventure. But yeah, I just thought that was, again, like an exercise in thinking very carefully about how you show things, what are the rules of the world, uh, how a power which can be very useful in a situation is not useful in, a, in another, uh, that kind of stuff. Yep. I, I often think this whenever I'm reading through this, uh, you know, any scene for the reread is like, what would have been, how would this have been handled by a lesser author or a lesser creator? And I imagine this whole sequence, it just, you just wouldn't have had this moments, these moments yeah. with Shirke and Isidro, which are to me the heart of it. You would show the group arriving at a city and going to their destination and you see some background stuff and that'd be it. But like Mira makes this, you know, important. The context of Shirke arriving in a city surrounded by humans, she would react like this and she would be flustered and she would run off. And it, it, I just like that he thought about the group dynamics and everyone's going to react a little differently, particularly Shirke. Right. And to your point, if a lesser mangaka were working on this, you know that the crowds would be shown very differently. <laughs> what I love about this episode is that Mira loves drawing people. <laughs> and you really you really see a lot of people doing a lot of stuff in the background. Like you were saying, like so many little details. This is Mira truly in his element. And I really love that. And, and with Shirke too, like – one thing that I always adore is that he always shows in these like lower stakes moments where she doesn't have to be on, you know, as a witch, she can, she has a chance to show that she is just a little girl still. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that she's still relying on, on her friends to help her and give her encouragement. And when she doesn't get that encouragement, she gets upset and runs away. So I really like that. Yeah. And even, for example, when she first uh, mesmerizes the two guards, and she's like, well, I can manipulate the art of people. And, and she's got that look on her where she's like, <laughs> top of the class, uh, little bratty, Mrs. Uh, <laughs> I know it all. So yep. it, it's funny to have <laughs> this. And of course, uh, you know, her interactions with uh, Isidro, who's a uh, goofy in his own way. So yeah, that's, that's 
That stuff, I mean, I, I really crave that kind of uh, stuff. Mm-hmm. Right, especially after, like, the high-stakes stuff we dealt with in the last episode with all the Kushan stuff. It's a, it's great how we get to shift into something completely different, not only the setting, but the emotional setting, too. Yeah. Uh, just one little detail. Is I think the way Shirke reacts to the guards, it, she deploys that, you know, thing with her staff to divert their attention. Also, it's kind of like a revenge, because what they're taking offense to is – her being a witch. Like they're basically saying you have to deny who you are. And she's, she looks kind of pissed about that for a moment before she does the staff thing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> she lets them have it. So it's definitely not just pragmatic. It's just a stupid move <laughs> yeah. to use on mass. Anyway. Yeah. That's all I had written down. Obviously there's a ton to say eager to see what you guys noticed that I didn't talk about. Well, I mean, you covered a lot. Uh, I'll say that I do love the moment when puck uh, goes by some guy who looks like a complete and utter moron. And, <laughs> yeah, that's and right. Pull, pulls his lip up, and he's like, I mean, the guy is like a stereotype of a, of a branded guy, but he's pretty funny. And you have Farnese in the background that's like, hmm, where have see where have I seen that before? Because of mm-hmm. course he did it to her. So when yep. he's like stealth mode. Well, it's also, his litmus test. What's interesting is because they're putting it into practice, this this otherwise abstract thing that they talked about a couple times now in Volume 24, you're just putting it in direct you know, usage because Puck introduces that by saying, when there's this many people around, and then he starts doing the thing, pulling the guy's lip. So it's connecting those two things that were abstract before. Yep. Uh, in the panel page. just above that, oh, there's a sorry. guy eating soup. And I know this is stupid, but like, I like how he, he rests his helmet on the edge of his little bag there, which is a nice spot for a helmet. I just thought that was careful attention to detail. It's really good. <laughs> That's all. I was just going to say on the following page, I like how they show the mercenary band or the mercenary group that's mm-hmm. uh, recruiting. And how different it seems from the band of the Falcon. Mm-hmm. Just in how they're dressed. And their overall attitude seems a lot fancier. Mm-hmm. Like they're 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 at a job interview. They're like trying to get people at the job fair to come and take their flyer. Whereas, yeah, I, you know, I don't know if the band of the Falcon ever had to do that, but if they did, I wonder how they would have handled it. It's it's a funny thing to think about. Yeah, well, it's kind of addressed a little bit by Isidro saying they're flashy and you know yeah. Gus reply and. Um, you're right that what I find interesting about that is when the guy is uh, saying what they've done, their deeds, mm-hmm. it's not very impressive to me. It's like, no, oh, we beat uh, one uh, brigade and we did this. And you're like, okay, well, that's not so that's not so great, basically. Mm-hmm. So it also, it's like, just by that, you can know uh, they're probably not so good. And Guts emphasizes as well that the victory itself isn't as important as making sure that you survive by the end of the battle. And like, that's definitely not something they mentioned. They just mentioned we we won here and we're undefeated here. Like, how many soldiers did you burn through to do that, though, you know? Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And like the Guts comments on this particular leader, you know, Guts is a sharp judge of character, says this guy looks high and mighty. And he does. He does look like he's just stroking his beard. Yeah. <laughs> I can't imagine Griffith doing the same thing, you know, at least not in this way. Griffith doesn't have a beard to stroke, so that mm, Yeah, no, he's hairless. Hairless <laughs> everywhere, as far as I know. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. We don't need to think about that, do we? <laughs> I mean, we can. Um, 
I'd, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention, and then when they show the different banners of all the things, I noticed one of the flags has the what I call the sun and moon emblem on one of the flags, which is what was on Geyseric, associated with Geyseric and his empire. Isn't it just know, a crescent moon in this case, on this one? Could be. It's hard to say. It's I don't know what to call it. I've always called it the sun and moon, as in the sun is there and the moon's... When the moon wouldn't be behind the sun, though. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm just so my how to say, my perception of this particular thing is forever linked to the uh, cities of gold uh, anime, which I was that uh, I watched as a child, and which mm. Esteban, one of the characters, has a medallion, and Sia, his uh, companion, has the other half. She has a moon, and she's got the sun, and when they assemble it. It unlocks whatever and whatever, and uh, you know they do something after that, which I've forgotten. But uh, yeah, I feel like in this case, it's only the only the crescent moon and Got the, it. the sun is missing. But it's just my perception, maybe. Sure. And even if it is, even if it is related to Geyseric's empire, like a remnant of it from a thousand years ago, I don't know what to make of it. I just thought it was notable that we see what looks like the same symbol on one of the, one of the flags. Yeah, it's cool. Well, I like we were discussing before we did the podcast. It would be like it's a bit far-fetched to think that far about saying maybe it's a proof that yeah, that empire when it was split, uh, each part, some of them retained some distant things from the past, mm-hmm. including that on the emblem. You know, why not? Why not? Yeah. Just like uh, Midlands flag has got the tower at the center and you know the four mm-hmm. elements on on the sides. Representing, I'm guessing the Tower of Rebirth. Yep. So yeah, mm. and maybe the former place of the like center of the country, the capital, which was destroyed. That's it for me. I'm going to pass the torch over to Grail for the next episode. No, that's me uh, on the next one. Oh my bad. Oh, you gave How's me you? a scare. It's a, it's a wag <laughs> episode. Well, Grail, it's let's a wag. Go. What are you waiting for? Uh, now I also got uh, a last thing to say about the title. Which yeah. you mentioned as military base. So I wanted to say, um, back in the day, uh, Psyche on Scotland Net translated as Garrison. And in Dark Horse, in their volumes, they translated it as Navy Yard. Um, I think, so Garrison is imperfect because it usually designates a specific force stationed somewhere. Whereas here, like you have huge armies uh, being assembled before they can march towards the enemy. And uh, Navy Yard from Dark Horse, I think, is even less appropriate because a naval yard usually means a place where warships are built. Uh, but the Japanese word used here was historically used both for land army, uh, land armies at a time and for uh, a part of the Japanese fleet at another time uh, during the first half of the 20th century. Uh, so its meaning is more like of a military base and especially a center of command. Uh, more general. And so I, f- I think military base is basically the most appropriate translation one could be, something that's more generic. And it fits what we see in this episode, which is hordes of soldiers uh, gathered all around the city, even up into the hills. So not so much uh, ships, but really like all that mass of soldiers being gathered, all those armies, before they can march out on, on the cushions. And just to be clear... If Mira wanted to say a Navy Yard, there are other words in Japanese to say a shipyard or a naval arsenal. Uh, like, for example, the modern Japanese army uses uh, Kaigun Kosho to talk about its naval yards. So, yeah, to me, uh, military base, better title. 
And that's it. And with that, after that long speech, uh, let's talk about the next episode, Human City or City of Humans, depending on how you want to say it. So we see Shiruke follow uh, the mysterious shadow that she saw at the end of the last episode, and she discovers that it is the spirit of a man who has been hanged. Facing her are two rows of gallows from which hang dozens of cushioned men. Touching a rope, she gets glimpses of these men's lives. They toiled as slaves until some day soldiers came and hanged them. Now their tormented spirits are unable to move on and are begging her to be set free. Two guards posted around inquire as to what she's doing there, but she mesmerizes them and gets them to tell her the full story. Britain is being a merchant city, it freely traded in slaves, and so they worked as such. But with the war, Britannis was designated by the Holy See to be the military base from which the assault on the Koshana Wisp could be launched. This made those slaves inconvenient, so simply they were hanged. No problem. Shuruke is of course dismayed by this treatment of humans by other humans, and she orders the soldiers to help her cremate the corpses so that their souls can find peace. As they do so, we see that a blonde girl is watches, watching from above, and she sees the souls flying away from the top of the smoke. She can see spirits as well. Meanwhile, Isidro and Pak are searching for Shiruke, but they come up empty-handed. Suddenly, a boy on horseback intrudes and inquires about what Isidro just said about a witch. We cut back to Shiruke, who finds herself arriving at the pier as the sun starts setting. She and Ivarela are stunned by the size of, the, of a warship standing next to them, and she wonders what it could be used to carry and from where. She then reflects on those huge armies and whether it's all just to shed blood and on the fact that this is a world her companions belong to. And in this place, the voices of the spirit are very weak, drowned out by that of humans, and she feels lonely, basically. And that's the end of the summary. So um, I have basically three three remarks on that. Uh, the first is that the art in that episode is really very good. Uh, I think especially we open up with a kind of a drone shot from above, which is you know something before drones existed. Pretty cool page. Then some amazing art for the gallows, from the shadow of the hangman to the use of the perspective. And um, the glimpses she gets when you see her basically hanging from the rope herself. I think it's extremely well done. Okay. And of course, special mention as well to the end of the episode, uh, the ship at the end. Very, very well done. Then, of course, uh, to me, the main topic of this episode is uh, slavery. Uh, I think it's very courageous of Mira to broach the topic of slavery and slave trading. It's not something you necessarily expect to see in a fantasy story like this. It's not something that was absolutely necessary to show, but he wanted to show it. And Shiroke is a perfect character to be exposed to it, as her secluded life and her education means she's devoid of cynicism in the matter. She's uh, rightfully dismayed by, by that. So, of course, we get to see more on the subject in the following episodes, which we'll get to. Uh, and, of course, that goes along, in a way, with the war prisoners we see in Volume 23, uh, as the cushion stake and sent against other millenders. And this allows a certain reflection, to me, on the ordinary atrocity of war, which, uh, as Guts remarks in Enoch, can be worse than an attack of monsters. So I find that interesting, you know, a reminder that... Uh, human against human battles are as horrible or more horrible often than what we see uh, just monsters eating people uh, because it's on a just a huge scale and it's very dehumanized in some ways. 
And on a more lighthearted note, uh, to me, a highlight of the episode is a single page showing Isidro looking for Shiruke. It's really great at showing the bustling city life. And there's a three panel mini skit of him stealing a pumpkin and covering it to look like her, showing it around. And then we see the apple merchant from volume 24 smashing him on the head with a turnip. Uh, and whether he stole the pumpkin from him or not is up for debate, but I'm going to assume <laughs> he did because it's funnier that way. And I just think, honestly, it's just great. So I love it. <laughs> and um, yeah, that's about it for me. Uh, what do you guys think? Yeah, you mentioned a lot of the things. Um, I do think it's interesting that Miura took a time to, as you said, not just mention slavery, but also kind of like the bureaucratic dealings uh, that led to basically these people's lives being inconvenient. Yeah. Um, and so they were hanged because it was politically uh, not cool to have cushions in the city and it'd just be, you know, a problem. So may as well just kill all of them in once. And then just, and even the guards, the way they talk about it, just like, oh yeah, these guys, I don't know. Who cares, basically, was the attitude. And with that, yeah. obviously, floors Shirke. It's a, it's interesting that he focuses on it because it's a, it's a disturbing and unpopular thing that happens uh you know it's it's not comfortable right to deal with human lives in this way but it is very realistic so uh i also like that shoke saw the perspective uh of the memories you can see that the rope as you said comes from her own neck the way it's framed and so she experienced all these things experienced this guy's death and look in her face she's holding her neck in the following frame um thought that was very cool yeah at the a couple of things at the end, this shot of her talking, uh, thinking about all that she's seen when she's standing by the the boat and the water, she thinks that this is the world to which they belong, and then she has this close up frame of guts, and guts himself looks sad about the state of the world. Right? It's like maybe she caught a, a feeling of guts before, and she couldn't quite place it or something. That's the way I thought about it. Like, what is this weariness that this person carries along with him? And suddenly she's attuned to it because she's seen these things. Um, and, or she just thinks this is the world that he occupies. He's a part of this bloody world, you know? Uh, anyway, I thought that was th- that scene, that particular exchange has really, has always stood with me, has stayed with me. Uh, her thinking about Shirke becoming accustomed to this violent, gross world that, you know, has been just beyond her beautiful forest her whole life. Yeah, it's a. I think it's a, in a way it's a criticism of civilization uh, mm-hmm. from her perspective. Like, why mm-hmm. do they need a city so big? Why do they need ships so big? Why do they need so many weapons of war? And it's also, I would say, it's casting doubt on her companions, which she like she met not so long ago, and why she got around to trusting them and so on. Yep. It's a bit throwing that into disarray, especially with the situation here, which, of course, works with what happens afterwards, which is Isidro comes to save her and so on. And then they, uh, they have the bar scene, which we'll get to in another uh, episode of the podcast. So, but yeah, it's, it's an important moment, I think, for her development uh, within the group, you know, her character development, encountering that side of humanity uh, and making her peace with it. And also... You know, making her peace with the fact her companions, uh, yeah, they come from that world. Um, the last page of it, she says, uh, the spirits here, the, the voices of the spirits are feeble, drowned out by the voices of people. 
It's interesting that, that the, shot, the way the shot is framed there, you actually see the wheel, the water wheel, I believe it is, that gets used during the uh, blaze, uh, blaze wheel later yeah. in the, blaze the sequence blaze here. Blaze wheel, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. But yeah, also, it's the same one, but yeah, it's a similar apparatus for sure. Yeah, and in the same vicinity of the, the ships. Anyway, um, I couldn't believe when I was going through this episode that that little sequence of Isidro only lasts like half a page or a page. It's really short. Because it occupies a much bigger space in my head. Like if you had asked yeah. me before, I would have said it takes five or six pages or so because oh, wow. so much happens, right? Um, and that was just in the tiny top panel. I know I've mentioned this before, but there's just like, I don't know what you call it, but. Um, so many things s- going on. Exactly. It's, it's like a kaleidoscope. A it's a kaleidoscope. In the in yeah. the bottom left panel, there's some guys getting beat up in an alleyway because it's dark back there. It yeah. looks like I don't know exactly. Basically. Yeah. <laughs> just and just but just maybe two feet away on the other side of a stairwell, the guy is, you know, courting this lady and he has a little fancy feather in his hat. Next just next to him, there's like two buddies out drinking. They're already drunk and it's just barely nighttime. It's not even nighttime yet. The sun's still up, they're drunk. They're gone for the day. Oh, it's just gorgeous, gorgeous yeah. display of humanity. And anyway, the pumpkin thing. What I noticed this time about the pumpkin thing is that Isidro's going around with this caricature of Shirke as a pumpkin, which is fucking great. Uh, and he goes to the beggar. I call him a beggar. I don't really know if he's a beggar or not. Um, and seems to be the pumpkin ends up in his soup pot, right? Along with the thing that Isidro yeah. gets hit in the head with, so right? Does we, so does the turnip, yeah. Sure, sure. The turnip gets in there too, but. The, the pumpkin's already in the stew pot, and he's waving his hand away. He's saying, no, not here either. Because the previous panel, the girls also said, no, we haven't seen her, right? Yeah. So the implication here is that the guy said, I'll tell you if you give me that pumpkin. I'll, I'll give you the information you're looking for if you give me the pumpkin. So he gives him the pumpkin, and he says, no, I haven't seen her. <laughs> She's like, great, thanks. Thanks, old man, for taking my pumpkin. Isidro got got by yeah, the- Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's an interpretation. I'm not sure that's really how it works. Well, how did it end up in the pot then? Why would Sidro give him the pumpkin? I think he was just like, eh, I give up. Could be. Could be. I saw it as transactional. Uh, that's uh, that's interesting, yeah. I, I think it's more like, eh, I, like I've asked everybody here, old man, have you seen this girl? <laughs> and he's like, eh, no. <laughs> I'm trying to think if I have anything else to say. Uh, yeah, the way the way the episode opens also stuck really with me. The way it's framed is very unique. This overhead yeah. shot. Yeah, I and mean that's why I said it's like a drone shot, but drones didn't even exist at the time. It's a, uh, I mean, I, I don't think I've ever seen certainly not in the series. It doesn't get made, but even in movies or so on, that's a very unusual shot to me. It's and like, it's like oh, a, go ahead. I was going to say it's almost got like a fisheye lens. Yeah, exactly. It's like a wide angle thing going on or uh, the perspective is skewed in a way so you can see yeah. more in the frame. It's really interesting. Yeah, Mura, I mean, he loved doing these kind of uh, crazy angles. Like, you know, sometimes you see stuff from like behind someone's ear or under God's nose. He, he, I think he was often uh, challenging himself to do different angles and not always like the same wide angle shot or whatever. And this one's very unique to me. So that's why I opened with that because really struck me as a, as being uh, out of uh, the ordinary. And I mean, even the rest of the page, when you look at the gallows, when Shiruke first sees them, there's that uh, kind of 
almost hyper-realistic shot of her face where you can see even the roundness mm-hmm. of it and her lips, which is, uh, Mira doesn't depict her like that very often. He, he, mm-hmm. he had that style during that period. Uh, he used it for Guts a bit, but for Shiruke, not very often. And then you get that great uh, perspective of the rows of uh, gallows going into the distance. That's almost like a classical painting in a way. <laughs> mm. Well, I don't, I, if I had to pick a reason for doing that strange overhead shot, it's it's because he shows almost every stone and every, what do you call it, tile. roof tile? Yeah, yeah, yeah roof the tile cross-hatching thing. is wild yeah. in this one. I, I think, think honestly, I think he was just flexing. I think he was just <laughs> saying, yeah, I'm, well, I'm she mentions it because I can. She mentions later that basically she's in this place that's so far from nature in a city, uh, the, the walls of stone. I think it's because it's all, this is all man-made, you know, everything, every little tile, every little stone has been fabricated to make a city, you know, so it's very foreign and distant from her experience. Sure. Yeah. So Mira really really emphasizes that. Also, one thing that I wanted to point out is that because it's getting close to sunset, which becomes relevant in the next episode, the lighting in this episode is really, really stark and interesting to me. And even in that first page, like you're mentioning, the lighting, the little shaft of light from the doorway that illuminates mm-hmm. the, the specter is really, uh, I don't know, I just find it really interesting. Yeah, it's very beautiful. I, d- I couldn't remember in your summary, did you touch on the fact that the spirits are tethered? No, I did not, but that's a very good point, yeah. They're so, yeah, her- tied to their bodies uh, by like uh, like a rope, so it's it's very hard to say very uh, thematically appropriate. And Shiruke does mention that like hanging bodies like that is a desecration. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's why she wants them to be burned because then the spirits, the souls are free to to leave and, you know, go through the cycle of life, whatever. Right. Yeah. And then we see Sonia, Sonia being able to see them being released and almost like a celebratory fireworks kind of thing happening at the top of that smoke. Yeah. Right. Which is yeah. interesting because, yeah, she's bringing balance back to this otherwise uh, uh, imbalanced human world, surrounded by tortured souls. Yeah, I, th- I thought that was interesting. The idea of showing the tether of the rope itself as tethering the soul to the body. And then basically the, the, the specter that she saw kind of peeked out to see her uh, and then had to come. You could see it coming, reeling back to the body in that one frame. Yeah, it's a great point. Uh, you're right to point it out. Um, I forgot about it, but uh, it's very thematically appropriate. And even the fact, like they're black mm-hmm. and feel like they're covered in darkness uh, when they're hanged. But after she, the bodies are burned, you see them fly off and they're white. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know if they are like, specifically white, but at least they're in a bright color. And you, it also goes with the fact they're freed and free to, mm-hmm. to go on, you know, to move on beyond this world. So interesting. And, and also, it's also to me that aspect shows like the importance of what a witch would do in human society, uh, if mm. witches were more common, which is even for a small thing like that, helping people uh, like not do things that are unnatural uh, you know, keep ways, the ways of the world like they should be, uh, versus doing stuff that say, well, what's the difference? Burning them, hanging them, burying <laughs> them, whatever, don't care. It also shows to me what a world without magic, uh, would benefit for having a magic user come, come in there. 
Yeah. That's it. It's a great episode. All right. So my episode is The Kite and the Owl on the Pier. The episode begins by returning to Isidro as he's approached by Mule on horseback, asking him about the location of the witch he was speaking of. Isidro complains that if he's asking him a question, he should get off his horse, and Mule obliges to his surprise. Removing his helmet, Mule repeats his question, mentioning that he's looking for someone. Isidro tries to change the subject by accusing him of looking to capture a witch and turn her in in exchange for a promotion, but quickly runs off before Mule can explain further. And Puck comes in with a dive bomb attack, which he avoids because he can see him. Isidro now believes that his mission to find Shirke has become an urgent one and rushes to track her down. Meanwhile, Shirke is meditating at a quiet spot on the pier closely attended by a cluster of seagulls. Evalera says that she wants to return to the group, but then sees someone approaching them, saying that witches really do exist. It turns out that this person is Sonia, which also explains why Mule was looking for someone in the other part of the city, plus we saw her in the previous episode. In her straightforward way, Sonia asks Shirke directly if she is in fact a witch, citing that her outfit and her communing with animals is a bit of a giveaway, as well as the presence of Evalera, whom she confirms she can see. Not only that, but Sonia reveals that she saw the freeing of the Kushan slaves' souls from a distance, and was impressed with how Shirke was able to get the guards to assist her with the cremation. Evalera, of course, is happy to accept the praise, but Shirke just seems embarrassed. The pair talk more about their circumstances. Sonia observes that the wit- that witches typically live in the wilderness, and that Shirke seems very lonely. She comments that it can be very difficult being different from others. When asked about her situation, uh, Sonia tells a story, punctuated by Evalera's excited commentary, of an ugly duckling that turned out not to be a swan, but a kite, and was rescued from a murder of crows by the falcon, the king of the birds, and his army of dragons. Shirky recognizes the reference at this point in Sonia's story, but makes no comment about it. While the kite could share the sky and feel the wind just as the falcon does, the ducks want the falcon to mate with the queen of the ducks, so that an alliance could be made between them. And so the kite is distracting herself from her frustrations by looking out at the sea and met an owl who, while surrounded by seagulls, seemed very much alone. Finally, Sonia finishes her story with the hope that the kite and the owl might become friends. Shirky says that the owl thinks so too. In another part of the city, Isidro is still looking for clues to track down Shirke and finds a lead from a passerby who tells him that he saw a strangely dressed girl heading to the pier. However, he warns that the area can become unsafe after dark with the presence of pirates looking to capture people and sell them into slavery. The shadows cast on the scene continue to suggest that it's closing in on sunset, making Isidro's need to locate Shirke even more urgent. Going back to the pier, Sonia asks Shirke if anyone, if there is anyone who can understand her, and Shirke explains that nobody else is a magic user like her, but briefly thinks back on Guts talking with her at the beach when she was overwhelmed with the emotions over losing Flora. Seeing her blush over her recollection, Sonia and Evalera declare that she must be in love, but Shirke, who furious, while furiously plucking a seagull, admits that it was an adult who paid her some attention, which she liked. Sonia gives her a knowing smile, and with that, suggests that they return to those whom they care about, and who care about them in return. All of a sudden, they're interrupted by a crowd of small Kushan children running from what appear to be pirates, who grab the kids roughly and threaten them with the lash for wasting their time by escaping. Shirke approaches them with the sharp tap of her staff, 
and against the ground and confronts the pirates and Sonia with with Sonia and Evalera in tow. Somewhere in the city, meanwhile, Isidro continues his desperate search. Uh, so for me, there were a couple of big takeaways for this episode. First, the, the parallels that are being laid out between Shirke, Sonia, and Isidro and Mule. They're all very young teenagers who are being swept up in the events around them uh, while figuring out their place among their older companions in the bigger scheme of things, while at the same time, especially in these particular episodes, having these little interactions between each other, especially between Isidro and Mule, which are pretty funny. Uh, but between Shirke and Sonia, there's the added tension for the reader of knowing that as they form this friendship, uh, they may not fully understand the conflict that they're already on opposite sides of. Um, so there's that feeling of, oh, what could happen in the future, which I really liked. Uh, so adding off of that previous idea uh, with Sonia and Shirke, I, I found it interesting that Sonia told her story sort of as an allegory about the kite. And it, for me, it felt like a reference to how she kind of thinks about the world, uh, about her age. But at the same time, it also connected her to Charlotte and how their stories with Griffith are, are compared to fairy tales. So I just found that interesting that these two characters who are both, you know, enamored with Griffith both have these fairy tale stories for, for how they uh, are interacting with him or how he saved them. So that's something I thought was worth thinking about. Uh, and also I just liked how the tone shift from we kind of got, while the situation is still pretty low stakes, because you know Shirky can take care of herself and Isidro is, is searching for her, uh, but it still feels like it's sort of a tonal shift again, where you go from the darker situation with the slaves and then going to this lighter story, which, you know, with the fairy tale in the middle of it, which I thought was great. So, uh, John, uh, Gob had one comment that he wanted me to include in this. He said, Shirky must be a powerful witch as she can keep all those seagulls from crapping on her. <laughs> Truly Flora's apprentice. She bonked each of them on the head with the staff yes. just off camera to make sure they don't poop. That is, a, that is a good comment, yeah. It's a, it's a limits of realism in Berserk is that the birds don't shit all over her. Yes, yes, exactly. So anyway, what were your guys' thoughts? Well, I'll start by saying that Duck Anna's expression is yep. the top 10 best manga panels of all time. It's 100%, incredible. 100%. It's, I also uh, like Charlotte's just yeah. completely doe-eyed, like deer Queen in headlights Ducky. look. Yeah, it's really hard to say. It feels like uh, Sonia's recollection of her because she looks even more, how to say, mm -hmm. plain and stupid than <laughs> in real life. So. <laughs> right. Um, what to say? I, I do think like the scene with a girl to me is really, really great. Uh, I, I love that moment. And I think it shows well Mira's range where he could do a slice of life shoujo manga no problem if he wanted to. Uh, right. And everything, you know, like... Uh, when Sonia and Ivarla do their like synchronized, uh, it's love. <laughs> that kind of stuff. Right. Uh, that stuff to me is really all great. The modified fairy tale is also great. And, the, and you know, even the little details, the fact Ivarla is uh, taken aback by the fact it's not going the way she knows. And then she's really engrossed in the story uh, and she wants to know more. So all that stuff to me is really great. And 
also love uh, that Isidro is immediately suspicious and antagonistic with Mule. <laughs> setting, <laughs> it's so great. Setting the tone for the relationship. Yeah, to me, it's really great. So, yeah, those are my takes, I guess. I love that Sonia sees her life and the world and the, the players in her world as these like caricatures uh, that she's kind of grouped things so cleanly into these little uh, uh, you know, types of creatures. Yeah. And it, it, it kind of works, at least visually. I, I particularly think it resonates to me where she says that this kite was special. She could fly in the same sky and feel the same wind as the Falcon. Which is, of course, uh, an what's the word? Allusion to her abilities being unique, and that she can connect with Griffith in a way that the others can't, and she feels that that makes her special. At the same time, she knows that she can't be part of Griffith's life because there has this whole thing with this stupid duck that has to go have sex with the, the falcon. <laughs> you know. And I also love the apostles. I and mean, they're caricatures, but they're really cool caricatures of dragons. Like, it just looks awesome in the background. <laughs> There's crows on fire back there. Uh, the crows representing the cushions, of course. Anyway, it's just all an allegory, right? It's a, it's a comical, childish allegory for this conflict uh, and all these characters. But it's done in a cool way <laughs> that kind of works. So I just thought, thought that was really special. Yeah, it also, I think it really does a great job of showcasing her perspective of the world in a way that's like, when you read it, you're like, yeah, sure. Like you said, it, it fits pretty well. Mm-hmm. But if you think about it a little more, it's really not yep. how to say. That's not at all how it is because he, the white falcon is actually closer to the dragons. He's like the mega dragon that's yeah. uh, in orbit uh, above the earth. Right. So, and, and she, yeah, maybe she can fly a bit uh, in, in the same wind as he can, but... Not really in the same way. So it's it's interesting. It's the same way for Charlotte and everything, since that's uh, more Griffith's own will than the will of you know, others around him. So Right. An interesting way to depict it in a way that makes sense from her perspective, but that if the reader thinks a bit more, can see that it's, uh, like you said, it's a bit childish and she she's also a young girl. I can never look at this episode and in the following episodes as well, but without feeling a little nervous or just apprehensive about these two, because they do get along so well and so quickly. And they're in such similar places in their their life's journey uh, and attached to such opposing forces, you know? And so I just, yeah. you really just want these two to be able to be friends, but they're on opposite sides. And it was funny is that part is Mira is very clever about not emphasizing that it's all implicit. You know, he doesn't make it very obvious or spell it out like, well, you're the enemy. That's never a part of this discussion, you know, Yeah. Uh, because it's it's there in the background. He wants readers to, to clue in on that, but also focus on the fact that they're being friendly and they're getting along. Yeah. And he also, I mean, Sonia's character is very unique because, I mean, as we see, uh, not when she's introduced, but in volume 23, she's pretty confident with apostles like she doesn't really care she's not very phased out by dead bodies or anything like that so she's not you know i feel like in a way if they had met differently she and shiroke would not have gotten along at all because she doesn't seem to have the same values she hasn't had the same education Uh, and so it's like their unlikely bonding is due to them being the odd one out in their respective groups but like you said these are also very different and like radically opposed. 
So the question this poses and that we don't have the answer to and, and won't get the answer to is uh, how it would have played out in the future uh, mm -hmm. between them. And that's, that's an interesting, very interesting question, how it would have played out. And honestly, <laughs> I do not know. Yeah, I mean, this will be something for a future reread episode, but the question, I guess, would be what, what kind of, uh, what, what's Sonia willing to tolerate in her utopia, I think, is, is a yeah. question. Yeah, yeah, what's the, what's the line that she can't cross? What's a breaking point? Uh, and also, I mean, I think I've, I think I mentioned that somewhere recently, but, uh, she, she's got a special role in the series as a medium. She's not quite a magic user like Shiruke, but she's, she's special. And we, we do get more mentions of people like that later on in the series when, once we're on Skellig, uh, with, uh, the woman that the Skolite goes to see the grave of, uh, under the, the tree, mm -hmm. the dance tree. And then we learn that Flora was also, uh, a medium like that when she was young. Mm. So those are like, uh, and also, of course, uh, there's also Benedicte from the, the light novel, which is also mentioned to be a medium. Uh, so these are clues that there's, it's not just, she, Sonia's not unique. She might be a remnant of something that once existed and was recognized in the world when magic users were more common. And that is not the case anymore. And to me, it opens the possibility that she's being, I mean, that's pretty clear, but she's being manipulated by Griffiths in a way. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. because her power is, her power is convenient for, for him, which is also, you know, in itself, it's also very interesting because it means his own power is limited in what he can do. You know, it, it used to be some people would say like, uh, Femto can know everything that's going to happen. He can predict the future because of causality, blah, blah, blah. And that's stuff that's never, never said anywhere in the in the story and the fact he relies on Sonia like he amplifies her power but he still relies on her to tell him where the leader on the, uh, the leader of the enemy mm -hmm. will be on the battlefield what the flow of battle will be like he relies on her for that so it means he can't do it by himself so that's interesting stuff you know that that stuff that's like if Sonia is compromised, wouldn't that be, uh, well, compromised, I mean, if she were to switch camps, wouldn't that be a, a big loss for him? Uh, and so on and so forth. Yeah, and also she and he are the ones that can go through the dolmens. Is that right? Dolmens? Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know. I, to me, it's always been very clear. And I think we actually have recorded a whole po podcast on Sonia. If we haven't, then a, a good chunk of one. But the fact that in almost every scene with Sonya, almost, we see her kind of having friction uh, with the group that she's found herself in. She doesn't like certain aspects of things about uh, the way she, the way her life is. Mm -hmm. She's very happy-go-lucky in a way, right? Um, what's the word for that character in the early 2000s? Manic pixie dream girl, you know, yeah. a little <laughs> bit. But she's... She what's the word? She chafes at certain aspects of of, of how things have gone, particularly with Griffith. Uh, so I don't think she would have things were not going to stay in stasis for her. I mean, it's pretty clear. I think it would. It's a much more interesting story if things change for her, particularly her alliance. Mm. That would be the big thing to change to make it interesting. Yeah, I do like the parallel between her feelings for Griffith and and what Casca used to. Yeah, when absolutely. Was, uh, when she was young as well. The whole savior syndrome, where it's like, oh, he saved me from the bad man, and uh, now I'm devoted to him. But 
He doesn't basically care about me that way. He needs me for yeah. something and only that thing. So of course it's different because for Sonia, I mean, Griffiths is now basically Femto. So it's very, very, very different. But, uh, yeah, there's a strong thematic parallel between the, the two situations, I think. Right. The look that Sonia gives Shirke when she realizes, you know, that she has a crush on guts or has a crush on somebody anyway, it's just like upturned smile and the eyebrows are down. It's just a really yeah. funny face. Yeah. And Eva Lira has the same face. She's mirroring the feeling. Yeah. And she looks like she's even shaking her butt, you know, in yeah. the way in like, uh, <laughs> so it's pretty, pretty funny. That's good stuff. Yeah. It was a yeah. real teen, teen girl moment. Yeah, yeah, and the, of course, I mean, you mentioned it, Grail, but the seagull getting its feather plucked out—it's like a classic gag, I guess. I it, know. It, always a joy to see. I mean, <laughs> just love it. <laughs> the, the face of the bird, amazing. Yeah, a lot, um, a lot of bird plucking moments in Berserk. <laughs> there's the bald crow. Yeah, there's like three or four of them. <laughs> One thing I don't think you mentioned, Grail, because we did a page by page thing, but like thematically, not thematically, um, broadly, what's happening with this scene with Sonia is that in talking with Sonia about their circumstances, Shirke basically becomes ready to rejoin the group. By the end of it, she's saying, let's go back to those that care about us. And she says, yeah. yes. You know, so like by the end, she has a smile on her face. She's had her moment of contemplation about her place in the world and the world that she lives in, and she's ready to rejoin the group. And, you know, start the next step forward. Yeah. Right. She had her girl talk moment. Exactly. Kinda she talked a, it out. Yeah. She feels a lot better now. Refocused so. her feelings. Yep. Right. And it's worth noting that Ivarela tries to be the voice of reason at the end of a previous episode. And in this one, she says she's hungry. They should go back. Mm -hmm. But Shirke is too upset, like she doesn't want to. And, yeah, talking with Sonia is what gets her to be like, okay, uh, let's go back. Yeah. And then we have the uh, introduction of the pirates, really. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this part was definitely towards the end here, but I, I just uh, – I had forgotten that the pirates showed up at this particular episode, so it was kind of cool that it – and it happened to end the volume with that cliffhanger, which I thought was interesting. Mm -hmm. It's fight one of 13 of the pirates, I think. Oh, yeah. Pir pirate arc. <laughs> the pirate arc, right? Well, that's not exaggerate. <laughs> uh, okay. Yeah, no boss, though. And I actually, uh, we're, we're getting ahead of ourselves, but this moment when Isidro draws blood, that's one of my other favorite, one of yeah. my favorite moments in the series. Yeah. As well. That's really yeah, cool. I mean, moment. this whole segment is pretty cool. Uh, yeah. From the fight, even with the boss, uh, Mule, Isidro, even the end with Azan. Amazing yep. stuff. I mean, Azan's I return. Azan's return. Return of the fucking king. <laughs> <laughs> and and I mean, it's pretty cool in its own way, too. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, so I'll have to wait. Yep. Until next time, volume 29's reread will be in probably two months. We'll have another episode between now and then. And so we'll be oh. midsummer. I have one more thing to say. The fucking sound effects... When the the uh, kids r uh, cry and the pirates uh, follow them, and you see the uh, seagulls flying off, and we get the kern kern sound effect for the seagulls and flappa sure. for them flapping their wings, yeah, and it's just fucking driving me insane. <laughs> Fuck flappa, flappa. <laughs> seriously, flappa is the sound of flappa uh, flappa. Yeah, oh my God, and you know, I mean, whatever, but uh, oh, no effort, zero zero. 
Zero on to on a hundred. That's my uh, grading for this. Well, uh, I feel like we've ended the past couple episodes now on a sound effect talk. We should have like a sound effect corner of the episode at the end to talk about the sound effects. <laughs> the segment. Uh, well, would it be better if they just phoneticized, you know, the hiragana or the katakana? Just wrote out the sound? The thing, well, the thing is, so, I mean, like, for example, on a previous page, they say fidget for Ivarela because she's fidgeting. And that's what the sound effect means in Japanese. It means she's moji, fidgeting. Moji. That, so that's, that's proper. That's an information. So why not? Uh, but. Well, flappa flappa is, is, is clearly saying flap, flap, flap. Well, I mean, then you say flap, right? Now, I would say flap. I would never write flappa. And if I was going to write flappa, there would be two Ps. That'd be the correct way to do that. I'm just saying. Yeah. So, and, and same for Kern. I mean, if you want to say, oh, you say bird, bird uh, crying or whatever. Uh, Kern, Kern. So, hmm. yeah, I mean, just, I don't know what you say, bird call or whatever, bird sound. Do seagulls. Yeah, I don't know what the seagull uh, call is. But in any case... It's very inconsistent, and I guess that's my problem with it. And it doesn't always convey a useful information. Some of them, you can tell they just made up uh, something to be like, eh, that's probably the sound it would make, maybe. Yeah, I understand. You want a logic to be applied across the board and not just, yeah. like, switch it willy-nilly. Oh, my gosh, I forgot the page where we see Shirke as an owl in a tiny little thought bubble. That's great. Oh, yeah, it's cute. Yeah. Man, that's good. That's good stuff. A lot of little details. That's like avatar sized. Man. Yeah, well somebody somebody can do that. If only Shirke was my persona and not void. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's it. We've milked this one as much as we can. It's only three episodes, pretty small one, but that was fun. A fun romp through some of my favorite episodes. I absolutely love this section yeah. of the series. Yeah, it's great. Good stuff. It's fun. Yeah, I love it. All right. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in a month for another episode of the Skullcast. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye. Before we go, I wanted to give a shout-out to everybody who's been diligently contributing to our Patreon. The proceeds for that go to Puella, our resident translator, who right now has been working on translating a bunch of stuff, including all of the tributes to Kentaro Miura that were featured uh, in the end of The Last Young Animal that featured Berserk back in September of last year. She just finished the Koji Mori comic uh, about their time as friends. That's an excellent read if you have not checked that out yet. Once she finishes all of those, she'll be working on the big, long interview with the Miura that's in the artwork of Berserk catalog that's sold at the exhibition. So if you liked this show and you wanted to hear just a little bit more, we have many podcasts, but they're between uh, 30 minutes to an hour. Those are released monthly, and they're exclusive to Patreon members. Uh, so we just finished one on From Software's connection to Berserk and our love of 80s movies and, and how that era of movies influenced Mira. Uh, finally, I wanted to thank each of the Gold Tier subscribers who helped make all of this happen. These include Piran, M, Spacey Louse, Rombad, Dark Link, Dirtiest M, Walter, Modal Eternal, Thomas Lambert, Milbs, Jason, Asmer, Guts, Isha, Atokas, and M. That's capital M. That's a different M than before. There are two M's. That's right. Thanks to everybody for contributing. We really do appreciate it. And if you want to help contribute and get some of these awesome bonuses we've just talked about, you can go check out patreon.com sknet.